Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Nature. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's... I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be finding out about a quiet step forward in aeroplane technology. And hearing about the DNA differences in individual brain cells. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. If you watch early 1900s footage of the Wright brothers demonstrating one of the first powered controlled aeroplanes and you listen very carefully, you probably won't hear anything because the footage doesn't have any sound. But the invention's gasoline-powered engine turning two propellers presumably made a pleasing rattle as it flew along just above ground level. This week, you can see footage of a new type of flying machine, one that, even with the sound turned up, is remarkably silent as it gently glides across a sports hall a couple of metres above the floor. And silent is just the way that one of its creators, Stephen Barrett, wanted it. Well, the idea is, in a way, a childhood fantasy. I used to be a big fan of Star Trek and sort of thought that the, the future of flight shouldn't be things with propellers and turbines and should be more like with a kind of blue glow and something that silently glides through the air. Stephen works in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, so he's pretty well-placed to create a glowy, futuristic-looking flying machine. But the method he's used to power his new plane has actually been around since not long after the first commercial flights. It dates back until at least the 1920s, where an eccentric inventor at the time started experimenting with high-voltage electrodes and uh, thought he had discovered um, anti-gravity, which of course was not the case. But that set some of the initial groundwork, some of the very, very old patents on uh, mechanisms for creating what's called an ionic wind. And those basic mechanisms are what lie behind the development of Stephen's new plane, a lightweight fixed-wing aircraft with a five-metre wingspan powered by electric aerodynamic propulsion, or what's sometimes known as an ion drive. So what we did for this design is to try and stick to something that looks somewhat like a conventional aircraft. But under the wing, rather than conventional engines, it has a series of electrodes. And those consist of an array of very thin wires at the front and then an array of aerofoils at the back. Now, those thin wires at the front 
are set at a very high voltage, plus 20,000 volts. And where that high field strength occurs, it uh, creates a source of ions. The ions are created when electrons are knocked off nitrogen molecules by the wires of the positive electrode at the front. The ions are therefore positive nitrogen ions. Meanwhile, the aerophores at the back of the plane are negative electrodes. Opposites attract, so the positive ions move towards the back of the plane. And so on that path from positive to negative, the ions collide with air molecules many, many times, transferring momentum uh, to the air, creating a breeze or an ionic wind that's left behind. And so as nitrogen ions push against the air molecules, thrust is created, silently and invisibly propelling the plane forward. Well, that was the theory anyway. Many attempts failed because of various things going wrong, like uh, structural failures, um, the power electronics frying itself. But the first day that it actually worked, it was about 50% power, so it was a power glide. But there was quite a lot of excitement um, and uh, a lot of cheering when that happened. From that first glide, the team was soon able to make the first fully powered flight. And it's no surprise they were so excited about it. It's taken decades to put this technology into practice in this way. For example, spacecraft have been using ion thrusters for decades, but with a design that only works in a vacuum. Here on Earth, it's relatively simple to create a little ion-driven lifter that jumps off a table, but that requires the craft to be attached by wires to a large power source nearby. The new plane has onboard batteries and is remote-controlled. So what we achieved was the first ever sustained flight of an aeroplane that is propelled by electro-aerodynamic propulsion. And that's also, um, by many definitions, the first ever solid-state flight, meaning no moving parts. This achievement has been made possible with modern technology, such as lightweight batteries, and it's an impressive feat of engineering to get it to work. Here's Chris Piester of the University of California, Berkeley. No one has ever been able to do this before, and plenty of people would have said, you know, no, that's not possible, that will never work. Chris works in this area himself and is optimistic about some of the applications, though perhaps not the ones involving futuristic glowing flying machines or ion-powered passenger planes. I'm sceptical of whether it will have practical application at large scale in the, in the atmosphere. I think that it's a technology that scales well, so for me as a micro-robot person, Um, propellers don't work well at a millimeter scale, Um, whereas this technology uh, has the same performance kind of independent of scale. So at a small scale, uh, this may end up being the best game in town. Potential applications include creating silent drones, which could be used to observe wildlife or monitor traffic in urban areas without creating noise pollution. Hopefully this is just the first step in developing useful flying ionocraft, And the sight of this silently gliding machine, with no visible power source or propulsion, may well inspire future researchers to explore new uses for this strange technology. It's cool because the physics is so different from the physics of of flight that we're used to. And you, you don't have to be a physicist to appreciate that. That was Chris Piester. And we also heard from Stephen Barrett, whose paper is published in Nature Today. Find more coverage of the work at nature.com forward slash news. We'll also find the video of the plane in action. Later in the show, Lizzie Gibney will be joining us to talk about a momentous day for scientific measurement. That's in the news chat. Up next, though, it's time for the research highlights. Read this week by Anna Nagel. 
The nests of Formica archbaldi ants are filled with a rather macabre collection. The scattered body parts of their prey, ants from the Odontomachus genus. Until now, the way the Formica ants were able to take down their targets had been something of a mystery, as their Odontomachus prey are much larger and fiercer, with spring-loaded jaws. Researchers discovered that the Formica ants are coated in chemical waxes that mimic that of their prey. These waxes disguise their odour, allowing the ants to get up close to their victims before delivering a precise stream of paralysing formic acid. Head over to Ansex Socio to find out more. In the semi-arid forests of northeastern Brazil, there stand tens of millions of huge earthen mounds. Equally spaced and up to four metres tall, the dirt hillocks cover an area the size of Great Britain and are thousands of years old. To find out more about them, a team of researchers cut into hundreds of the mounds. Most were solid dirt, but many contained entrances to an underground network of tunnels created by the subterranean termite, Sintermes dirus. The team suggests that the discarded detritus is the result of the termite's tunnelling travails. It's thought that by dumping dirt at regularly spaced intervals, the termites minimise the time taken to reach a disposal zone from anywhere in their underground network. To dig that research out, go to Current Biology. Next up in the podcast, Ali Jennings has been learning about how neurons change their DNA. Most cells in your body carry a copy of your genome, information written in DNA. And for the most part, the DNA sequence doesn't change. However, things are a little different when you look at the brain. It's been known for a while that cells in the brain can have different DNA sequences from each other. And not just small mutations, large chunks of genome can be copied and moved around. Having different DNA sequences in different cells is called genomic mosaicism, and it can have profound effects on gene function and cell survival, both positive and negative. But despite its importance, researchers have struggled to explain how it happens. Now, this might be about to change, because a group of researchers have uncovered a possible mechanism for mosaicism. They wanted to understand how a single gene could vary between cells. So they chose a gene that is known to show many mosaic changes, the amyloid precursor protein gene, or APP for short. The researchers examined APP in neurons taken from human brains. But instead of reading the DNA sequence directly, they looked first at RNA, which is transcribed based on the DNA. This let them spot possible changes in the APP gene in different cells. Here's Gerald Chun from the Sanford Burnham Prebis Medical Discovery Institute in California. The first thing uh, we did is we looked at RNA, and what that um, revealed was a whole menagerie of previously unseen variants of APP. Uh, There were truncated forms that had lost the central portions of the gene, and they had been stuck back together to form new, uh, new molecules. This suggested that the neuron's DNA contained different versions of the APP gene, along with the original. And indeed, looking through the genome of the neurons revealed a whole host of APP gene variants. To visualise what they'd found, 
the team ran the samples through a gel to separate the differing DNA segments into different bands, depending on their size. Sure enough, we pulled up a whole bunch of bands, not just a few, just a ton of bands. In fact, so many bands that they were smearing, they formed a smear within our gel. So, how did each cell end up with multiple differing versions of the APP gene? And why did different neurons have different gene variants? Gerald and his team think that something unusual is happening to the RNA from the APP gene. We have APP. It's uh, transcribed to produce an RNA. And then it can be uh, copied in its entirety back into the genome as the genomic cDNA. cDNA, or complementary DNA, is formed when you copy an RNA sequence back into DNA, reversing the usual route of DNA being transcribed into RNA, which then produces protein. This reverse transcription could explain all of the APP gene variation. It appears that they are reverse transcribed through an enzyme uh, called reverse transcriptase. A reverse transcriptase is kind of a sloppy copier. And so it starts to produce errors as it copies. So, neurons gain multiple badly copied versions of the APP gene, thanks to the enzyme reverse transcriptase. This leads to the mosaicism of APP, the changes in its DNA sequence. Mosaic changes in the genome seem to occur as a part of normal neuronal activity. But there's another side to the story. One of the reasons that Gerald's team chose to look at APP is that amyloid precursor protein is linked to Alzheimer's disease. One element of this is that people with Alzheimer's show more mosaicism in their APP gene. The team wanted to see if their newly discovered mechanism, the reverse transcription of APP, was also responsible for the mosaicism in Alzheimer's brains. So they compared neurons from people with Alzheimer's to neurons from healthy people. And so in the normal case, we don't see nearly as many of these uh, variants. In Alzheimer's disease, we have more variants, variants that have more mutations or variations within them, and just plain old more variants inserting within the neuronal uh, genome that may cause them to die. So you might think of this, in the case of Alzheimer's disease, as something gone awry with the normal process. This work offers new insight into a potential mechanism underlying some forms of Alzheimer's disease. But what does it mean for future treatments? What was very, very um, interesting about that conclusion was that uh, it, it suggested that, well, maybe if you were to inhibit reverse transcriptase, you might have an effect on the course of Alzheimer's disease. So, by stopping the sloppy reverse transcriptase from inserting lots of incorrect versions of APP back into the neurons' genomes, you might be able to tackle the disease. We asked Pierluigi Nicotera, the scientific director of the German Centre for Neurodegenerative Diseases, for his thoughts on the new paper. So I must say, when I started reading the paper, I was initially a bit sceptical because uh, it seemed a bit far-fetched. As I read over it, I got more and more enthusiastic about it to see the extent to which they went 
into uh, making sure that, uh, that there was absolutely a very thorough uh, validation of, uh, of the wrong observations and results. I think it is beyond many other papers that I've seen in my entire career. I think this is really a breakthrough. But could targeting reverse transcriptase really offer a new route to treating Alzheimer's disease? In principle, it's absolutely plausible to me. And uh, if I had the possibility to run a clinical trial like this in a group of patients with an early stage of Alzheimer's disease and without uh, too much side effects, I think I would go for it. This study has revealed a new way for neurons, although born with identical genomes, to become unique through modification of their own DNA. The paper shows how this mechanism is important for APP and Alzheimer's disease, but both Pierluigi and Gerald wonder if this kind of DNA rewriting is also happening with other genes, perhaps contributing to the huge variety of neurons that we see across the brain. That was Ali Jennings talking to Pierluigi Nicotera. You also heard from Gerald Chun, whose paper you can read over at nature.com forward slash nature. Finally this week, it's time for the news chat. And joining me in the studio is Lizzie Gibney, senior reporter here at Nature. Lizzie, thanks for stopping by. Hello, Ben. Well, for our first story today then, Lizzie, we're going to talk a bit about science history and uh, perhaps history in the making. And you were there in the room. What's, what's been going on? That's right. So I went to Versailles, which is just outside Paris, for the official event that defined the redefinition of some of the units of measurement that we use, um, both in science and in the rest of the world. So, so what sort of measurements are we talking about then? So the unit of mass, the kilogram, the unit of current, the ampere, the unit of temperature, um, which is the Kelvin, and the unit of substance, the mole. Well, before we talk about maybe what they've been redefined as, maybe we should talk about what they were defined from. Well, the most famous one is the kilogram. So that is the very last unit that's defined according to a physical thing. So this is like about a palm-sized block of metal, of platinum iridium. And since 1889, that has been the kilogram. So every time any kilogram measurement has been made in the world, that effectively has been calibrated at some point, traced back to this one kilogram that sits in Paris. Now that is clearly a bit of a ludicrous situation to be in because although it's kept under lock and key in a very careful condition, someone could lose it. It might gain or, or lose a few atoms here or there. And that would be a big problem for the world. So that's where we were then. So how much does a kilogram weigh now then? And, and how do you define it? A kilogram still weighs a kilogram, um, although the former kilogram may not weigh exactly a kilogram anymore because the definition is changing. So the definition is now going to be based on fundamental constants of nature. So for mass, that's Planck's constant. Now, it might not seem easy to see the relationship between mass and Planck's constant. Um, This constant relates um, frequency to the energy of a particle. It's a quantum number. But the way that physicists have done this is a very, very clever system. They essentially put a mass on one side of a balance and on the other side of a balance produced an electromagnetic force. And if you plug in the current and the magnetic field that you're using to create that, you can relate these quantum constants to the mass that you have on the other side. Now, for years, they've been doing experiments like these to come up with very, very, very precise measurements for Planck's constant, measuring it against the kilogram. Now, in the future, what they're going to do is they're going to flip that experiment and they put in Planck's constant and that they can use to measure any mass that they want on the other side of the balance. Right. Well, that seems quite clever, but it also seems kind of complicated as well, though. Why why would we want to do that compared to this block that we, we have and have been using? 
Well, for one reason, as I said, that block is uh, you know, vulnerable because by definition, it always has to weigh a kilogram. There was something very nice said at the conference, which was if you left a fingerprint on that metal block, it would still weigh a kilogram, but the whole rest of the world would weigh less. Um, that is clearly a problem. Other than that, the idea of defining mass by these experiments and fundamental constants means that you can actually do that anywhere. It democratises the system. So if you have the right setup, which is very precise, but they're trying to make it easier and cheaper, then you can create an exacter kilogram as possible anywhere in the world. Brilliant. Well, if that's the if that's the kilogram, then and you mentioned some others too. Um, how have they changed then? So that's a little bit more subtle. Some of them involved kilogram in their definition. So they've shifted as a result of the change of the, in the kilogram. Um, one of the other more significant ones is the ampere, which used to be to do with two infinite wires and the force between them. Um, now, two infinite wires clearly can't exist. So this was a hypothetical abstract concept, which wasn't very satisfying for metrologists, these scientists who, who study measurement. Um, so instead, it's going to be defined in terms of the flow of individual electrons, so the, the actual charge on a single electron, which is just a wonderfully precise way to, to measure current. All right, then, well, let's think about this then. So we've had these for hundreds of years, these old standards, and now we've got these new standards. Uh, is it, you know, a, a flip of a switch from old to new? When, when are they going to get brought in? So this was the official green light, and people have been working on it for decades now. Um, but it will come into force on the 20th of May next year. So mark your diaries. Well, you talked about Kelvin there. What was the temperature in the room? How excited were people uh, to be there and, and do this vote? Oh, it was an absolutely wonderful atmosphere. As I say, there's been a huge amount of work that's gone into this and they were certain the vote would go through. They knew that it would um, be given this green light, but there were there was a standing ovation, there was champagne afterwards. Um, there were all just wonderful quotes from people saying, this is a dream come true, this is a, a thrill ride. Um, this is, uh, yeah, this is the biggest day uh, in metrology for probably hundreds of years since the, the founding of the SI system and even since the introduction of the metric system during the French Revolution. Fantastic. Well, Lizzie, I know you were tweeting up a storm during the event. Um, where can people find your thread? At Lizzie Gibney on Twitter. Perfect. All right, well, let's move on to our second story. And it also involves measuring something. But my goodness, I think the scales couldn't be more different if we tried. Um, what have we got for this one? That's right. So this is the first automated system for getting an early warning about volcano eruptions, at least at this stage, a particular eruption, which is of Mount Etna, which is a volcano in Sicily. I mean, I know on the podcast before we've talked about volcanic eruptions. Um, what, what's been going on that's allowed them to kind of do this? This has been a study looking at the very low frequency sound waves, infrasound. So these are waves that people can't hear, but that travel for thousands and thousands of kilometres. Um, and this is something that scientists have realised they can actually use in order to not only detect eruptions, but to predict them. OK, and, and how does that work? The idea is that as gas comes out of the of the magma, of the lava, ahead of an eruption, it causes the air within the crater to kind of move back and forth, to slosh in a way that, that creates sound waves a bit like they would in an instrument. And just like in an instrument, you can use those waves to figure out the, the geometry of the space inside uh, which they're moving. So what scientists did was, starting um, back in 2010, they started to look at eruptions and listen out for these infrasound signals and to figure out whether they could actually use that infrasound in order to predict when an eruption was going to happen. And, and, and what, did they manage it? 
They did. So over a period of about eight years, the system was successfully able to predict 57 out of 59 events, which means it actually sent messages to the scientists an hour before the eruption took place. I mean, that's really clever. I mean, I know with these kind of disastrous events, I mean, an hour, I mean, is so useful, right? Absolutely. So often you need experts to, to vet information if they see an eruption might be on the cards. That takes time. This is an automated system um, that can work faster than that, which is really important in all the situations where time is really the essence. So if you're a community that lives near a volcano or maybe you're um, a, a plane that's flying into a region near a volcano, this is exactly what you need to know and fast. Well, I know that all volcanoes aren't necessarily created equal and there's different sorts. Uh, is this something that could be used in other locations? So scientists hope that the system will work in other kinds of open vent volcanoes, a particular kind that exists. So, for instance, one is Mount Pavlov in Alaska. So that might be another test in the future for this kind of early warning system. Um, and they're also actually already employing sensors in order to see if this will work in Iceland. Great stuff. Thank you, Lizzie. That's it for this week's news chat. And listeners, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you'd like to find out the latest news from the world of science, head over to nature.com slash news. And don't forget to check out our video of the silent ion plane. You can go to nature.com forward slash news or youtube.com forward slash nature video channel to see it in action. I'm Shamni Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.